0: So what happens next? What happens next is a very human question. These days, so many of us are wondering, what's next with this pandemic, this quarantine, this stay-at-home order? What's next for the economy, for our country? What's next for those most vulnerable, for those I love most in the world? what's next is also a question most of us ask at one time or another when confronted with our own mortality what's gonna happen next after i die and our human vulnerability to disease and death has been very much before us the past few weeks but way back in the summer long before the novel coronavirus started making headlines i had already made plans to preach a sermon today inspired by Bart Ehrman's latest book, Heaven and Hell, a history of the afterlife. And now that Easter is finally here, this topic feels more relevant than ever. At the same time, I'll admit, in the wake of so many deaths around the world, there's part of me that feels averse to talking more about mortality, the afterlife, whatever does or doesn't come next. But another part of me feels like it's more important than ever in such a time as this to address such matters of life and death as clearly, as compassionately as we can. So stick with me for a few minutes and I hope we'll hit some interesting points along the way. I'll start with a story. I was raised in a large Southern Baptist church in the Midlands of South Carolina, and as with many evangelical Christian congregations, First Baptist Florence had a general folk theology. Some of you may remember the cartoon Family Circus, uh, that sort of general folk theology that after someone died, they were looking down on you from heaven, sort of literally like crouched on the clouds, and that you would one day be reunited with them after your death. All that's... Assuming, of course, that you were destined for the good place, if you will, and not the bad place. But let's uh, set that aside for now. Remember this worldview being interestingly challenged um, unexpectedly one Sunday afternoon during a youth group Bible study. We were reading the book of First Thessalonians, which is actually the chronologically oldest book in the New Testament, uh, written around uh, 50, about 20 years after Jesus' death. Um, I'll share a quick um, slide with you. I I prepared some visual aids to try to uh, keep it interesting so you don't have to just stare at me for 20 minutes on your screen. So here's a a quick slide. This is actually a photo of First Baptist Florence. This is the congregation where I uh, grew up. And then here's a, just a quick slide, a timeline, that if you look on the bottom left-hand corner, you'll see the death of Jesus around the year 27 to 30. And then if you look at the top, you'll actually see 1 Thessalonians around 52 decades later. So you have to go all the way to the, the middle uh, to see the Gospel of Mark, all the way to, to the right to see the Gospel of John. So interestingly, as I think many of you know, the books of the New Testament about the life of Jesus actually come after the writings of Paul in the 50s. And the very first book to be written in the New Testament is actually 1 Thessalonians, not Matthew, which is the canonical order, which can be a little bit confusing. So let me end that screen share. Uh, So here's the thing. Part of why the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church at Thessalonica in the year 50, 20 years after Jesus' death, is that people were starting to ask questions and get worried. If you have ever thought that it's just a little bit scandalous that 2,000 years have passed and Jesus hasn't come back yet, it is a little scandalous that 2,000 years have passed and Jesus hasn't come back yet, if you're maintaining a hope in that. Uh, But Many of Jesus's earliest followers, they expected him literally to return in their lifetime. But an increasing number of people were dying year after year with no sign of Jesus's return and people were growing troubled. So that's where we get to that passage we were reading that fateful afternoon in my youth group. It's Paul's attempt in 1 Thessalonians to reassure them. And I'll I'll show you another um, quick slide of that as I read it to you. So the First Thessalonians 4 um, tells us that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of, ah, sorry, you have to DM me one second, uh, your faces are blocking my slide in my view try that again. We who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who have died. Those who are alive will not precede those who have died for the Lord himself with a cry of command, with the archangels call, will descend from heaven and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. That's Paul's writing to the church at Thessalonica about 20 years after Jesus' death. For anyone wondering, yes, this is one of those textual sources for all that rapture business that made those left behind authors a ton of money. But here's the part I want you to notice. The plain sense of this text is that those who have died are still in the ground and that they will remain there until Jesus' return. That may or may not be what you believed. I think it is what Paul believed. For Paul, the good news is not that the dead are in heaven looking down on us, as in the family circus cartoons. Rather, the good news for Paul is that whenever Jesus returns, the dead will rise first ahead of us who are still alive. But when this point was made many years ago in that youth group Bible study when I was a teenager, a lot of people were troubled. One person in particular I remember Weeping convulsively, like literally just kind of rocking on the ground and just crying effusively at the idea that her beloved grandmother was at that moment potentially lifeless in her grave, even if in the future she still had some hope of being raptured, according to First Thessalonians. That Bible study quickly devolved into a handful of her friends trying to comfort her by saying, oh, surely your grandmother is in heaven with Jesus and the angels watching over you right now. Um, Some of us, including me, were kind of sitting back. I mean, I sympathized with her distress, but I also remember thinking, I mean, wait, like, we spent all this time saying we're supposed to believe what the Bible says. Are we supposed to believe what the Bible says? Are we supposed to believe what we want to be true? Because if we get to believe what we want to be true, I have some suggestions that I would like to offer. Looking more broadly, a recent Pew research poll um, showed that 72% of all Americans agree that there is a literal heaven where people go when they die and that 58% believe in a literal actual hell. I'll show you a quick slide for that. I know it can be difficult sometimes to process um, statistics just by hearing them orally. So here's a quick uh, slide from the Pew Research Center. So that in 2014, among U.S. adults, 58% believed in a literal hell. So a little bit of a majority, but then almost a majority that don't. And then 72% believe in a literal heaven and about 30% do not. So those numbers are still quite high here in the early 21st century, even if they're markedly lower than in previous periods of U.S. history. And therein lies one of the most important points I want to underscore for you this morning. It may actually be less important what anyone believed about the afterlife then or now, and much more important to notice that views of the afterlife have changed considerably over time, and there is every reason to think they will continue to change I'm going to give you just a quick set of examples we're going to do a very rapid hop skip and a jump through history if you really want to dig in the details again Erman's book is out there for you Uh, But it becomes very apparent, even with the most, even a cursory um, survey of history, that modern Western notions of the dead looking down on us from a heavenly paradise are, were very much not always the popular opinion. Indeed, if it is not too controversial to say so, such views, indeed every view about the afterlife, had to be invented over time. So I'll show you a few more quick slides. This first slide is of the the tablets, uh, the cuneiform tablets of the Epic of Gilgamesh. So we're gonna start at the beginning, the Epic of Gilgamesh from the uh, ancient Mesopotamia about 4,000 years ago, about the time the pyramids were being built. It provides us with the earliest record in human history of the terror of death. We get this, some of you may remember reading the Epic of Gilgamesh, the wild man Enkidu imagines an afterlife quite different than modern conceptions of heaven and hell. In this ancient view, everyone remains in the ground where you eat, quote, dust and clay because you're in the ground and you dwell in darkness forever because you're in the ground. So not particularly cheery from our 4,000-year-old forebears. Uh, here you have an imagining of a scene from Homer's Odyssey. So we're fast-forwarding a 1,000 years to the 8th century BCE, 800 years before the historical Jesus. Uh, Homer's Odyssey was a huge influence on the worldview of ancient Greece, uh, comparable later to the Bible's influence over culture. Homer's epic Greek poetry imagines that those who have died are dull, bodiless shades. The blind prophet Tiresias imagines the underworld as a joyless kingdom of the dead. Um, Achilles, the hero of the Trojan War, says that the underworld is, quote, where the senseless, burnt-out wraiths of mortals make their homes. And there's likewise a famous scene in which Odysseus tries to embrace the ghost of his deceased mother. And the text says, three times I rushed to her, desperate to hold her. Three times she flustered through my fingers, sifting away like a shadow, dissolving like a dream. Again, quite different than modern conceptions of heaven and hell. Uh, finally, I'll give you one more example from the ancient pagan world. Today, there's this widespread use of RIP, these Latin initials uh, meaning rest in peace, originally, resquisat um, impacem. The widespread ancient equivalent was uh, a seven letter Latin abbreviation. You see it on the top right of your screen NFFNSNC, which stands for non fui. Fui non sum non curo, which translated means, as you can see here from Epicurus, I was not, I was, I am not, I care, not. Turning briefly to the Bible, one might think that, oh, finally in the Bible we will get the modern conceptions of heaven and hell, but surprisingly to many people it's a lot more complicated than that. Indeed, nowhere in the entire Hebrew Bible, the entire uh, Christian Old Testament it's also called, nowhere is there any discussion at all of heaven and hell as a place of reward and punishment for those who have died. Now, those of you who know the Bible well may be thinking, what about Sheol, S-H-E-O-L? The word Sheol occurs about 60 times in the Hebrew Bible, and predominantly it's just a reference to death or the grave. Uh, Though similar to Odysseus' experience with his mother, there's a few instances of people being summoned back up from Sheol, But in each case, it's clear that it was certainly not a reward for the righteous nor punishment for the wicked. It's more of a place of relative non-existence. As we move um, in our survey to the first century in the time of the historical Jesus, we find a diversity of Jewish beliefs about the afterlife. We have the desert dwelling monastic Essenes, most famous for giving us the Dead Sea Scrolls. They believed in an immortal soul that would live on after the body perished but we also have the Pharisees. They took it one step further. Not only was there an immortal soul like the Essenes, but the Pharisees believed in a bodily resurrection. The Sadducees, though, went the other direction uh, entirely. They taught that there was no afterlife. So amidst these different Jewish groups, a close examination of the Christian scriptures will also show you that Jesus in the unlike a lot of evangelical Christians, didn't care a lot about whether individuals were going to heaven and hell. That just wasn't what he talked a lot about. He was instead focused on cultivating the kingdom of God, what we sometimes call today the beloved community. And as we already saw with Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, after Jesus was killed and year after year began to pass without his return and Rome continued to reign instead of the kingdom of God, views of the afterlife continued to evolve. And by the third century, we finally see stories about reward and punishment and the afterlife becoming the dominant view. And they sort of fully grow into fruition with like Dante and the Inferno and the Paradiso in the Middle Ages. But these views that became dominant in the third century about heaven as reward and hell as punishment, they differed from anything in the founding teachings of Jesus, Paul, or even Revelation. And fascinatingly, as teachings about heaven as reward and hell as punishment began to flourish, we also find the earliest strands of our own Unitarian Universalist tradition entering the picture. In the early 3rd century, we get this guy named Origen of Alexandria beginning to stir up major controversy with his theological treatises, arguing that in the end, everyone will be saved universally. So that theology became known as universalism, as in the second half of our super long name, right? Unitarian Universalism. But it's here that I don't want us to miss the most important point. The most important takeaway of our quick hop, skip, and a jump through the history of the afterlife is not that you need to remember all those details about what exactly the Epic of Gilgamesh said and what the Odyssey said and what the Hebrew Bible said and what Jesus said and Paul said, etc. The point is that there have always been a variety of views about the afterlife that have evolved and changed and been invented over time. And that means we are equally as worthy as anyone who has come before us to help further evolve understandings of what doesn't, does or doesn't come next, as long as we do so with care, with compassion, with integrity. So what might that mean specifically for how we think about what's next, given all that we know here in the early 21st century? By way of responding to that question, as I move to my conclusion, there's one more really interesting twist I want to leave you with that is a huge part of our inheritance as Unitarian Universalists can potentially really help inform our lives uh, in the days ahead. Just as views of the afterlife change over time, that fierce, compassionate, controversial commitment of our universalist forebears in the 18th century to preach universal salvation. I mean, I really can't overemphasize how controversial it was to preach universal salvation in the 1700s, but that, that fierce, compassionate commitment to do so, to advocate for the souls of every single person universally, that continued to to evolve, to grow and change, just like views of the afterlife. And significantly, our forebears, they begin to shift their focus from just rejecting hell in the next world to, as the saying goes, loving the hell out of this world. Instead of focusing most of their time and energy on what's next after we die, as some folks throughout history have done, it gets really interesting when you shift your focus to what's next here on earth, where you can definitely have some impact. And in our own UU history, as a result of that shift, that same spirit of preaching universal salvation for all people in the next world in the 18th century, that evolved into the struggle for universal freedom for all through the abolition of slavery, which many of our universalist ancestors were involved with. They, they asked, you know, so we've already advocated for the universal salvation of all in the next world. What do we do next if everyone matters? In the 19th century, it was clear that universalism called them to free all people from enslavement. In the 20th century, that same set of questions led to many of our universalist forebears being involved in universal suffrage for women. You know, what do we do next if everyone matters? If everyone matters, everyone should have the right to vote. And same for getting involved with the civil rights movement and then universal rights for lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender citizens in the early 21st century. What do we do next if everyone matters? So as we all wonder, what's next in our current societal and global crises i invite you to consider that the universalist half of our heritage can continue to be a touchstone as we advocate in this age or any age for what our first principle calls the inherent worth and dignity of every person what our sixth principle calls the goal of world community with peace liberty and justice not merely for some but for all. That doesn't mean that everyone has to be equal, but it does mean that everyone has a stable floor that they can't sink beneath, that everyone has a dignified life. And I promise you that achieving universalist goals in the 21st century, goals such as universal healthcare, universal education through college or vocational training, a universal basic income, these things are hard to achieve but I promise you they are no more difficult to achieve than ending slavery in the 19th century, expanding the right to vote in the 20th century, achieving marriage equality in the 21st century. We can do hard things. And hey, we seem to already be unexpectedly dipping our toes into the waters of a universal basic income these days with these $1,200 stimulus checks. In that spirit, the best of Easter has always been about unexpected new hope, surprising new life on the other side of death and loss. So may it be this year in ways yet unforeseen. None of us knows with certainty what's next after this life, but may we do all we can for as long as we can to make the most of this life for every person that we can. In that spirit, as you discern how you may be able to act within your spheres of influence for our universalist values in the days ahead, I invite you to pay close attention to the lyrics of our next hymn. On this Easter Sunday, what guidance might there still be for you in the life and teachings of that ancient rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, for such a time as this?